This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And to want to give a special thank you to Jay Bauman and Yuka A, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Yul Wo Jan and Leslie Lewis, who both just increased their pledge amounts. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 526 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And today's guest is Stephen Novella, co-host of the popular podcast The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He's an academic clinical neurologist at Yale University School of Medicine, author of the blog Neurologica, and senior editor of the website Science-Based Medicine. He's also the founder and president of the New England Skeptical Society, a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, and founding chairman of the Institute for Science and Medicine. And in this interview, we'll be discussing his new book, The Skeptic's Guide to the Future, what yesterday's science and science fiction tell us about the world of tomorrow. And now here's our interview with Stephen Novella. All right, so we're here with Stephen Novella. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so how did you first get into science fiction? I mean, I've been into science fiction, you know, my whole life, as long as I can remember. Um, you know, big Star Trek fan when we were very young, uh, but, you know, branched out into all kinds of science fiction. Read a lot of Isaac Asimov, uh, you know, then Dune got into Star Wars, pretty much everything. And so when you say we, you're talking about your you and your brothers? Yes, me, my brothers and I, my two uh, co-authors on the book, and I were big science fiction fans. So were you all into the same exact stuff, or was was one of you more into Star Wars and one more into Star Trek or anything like that? It was pretty much the same, because obviously we would share anything we discovered or we got into with each other. And so we, you know, it tracked pretty closely. Once we you know, we're adults and, and had our own lives more uh, Then we, we branched off into different, I think, literature. So we kind of find our own books to read. We always tell each other about it and occasionally we'll read the same stuff, but we, we end up reading a lot of different books, but, but the movies we all watch any decent science fiction movie, we're all going to watch it oftentimes together. <laughs> oh, so do you live uh, nearby? You can all we get all together. Li- we all live in Connecticut. Yeah. We all live within driving distance. Oh, that's really cool. Um, and so then the, um, the books, so you're talking about, you have different science fiction authors that, that you like, or that Bob likes or Jay likes or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm definitely into a, a lot of the classics. So, um, got into Isaac Asimov very early and actually got into a lot of Asimov's nonfiction books. And I've probably read more of his nonfiction books. Uh, than his fiction books. But, you know, the robot series and the foundation series, you know, are, are wonderful. 
Um, and then, you know, I've read the entire Dune series. I just think that's brilliant. I even read the prequels by his son, which were not quite as good. It didn't have some of the, um, I think, the, the hard-hitting scientific background that his father had. But the stories, it was good to complete that arc, you know, of, of the stories. Uh, and some, um, like the Gap series is one of another one of my favorite series. Um, not, not quite, I think as well known, uh, as obviously Asimov or, or Frank. Yeah. Who, who's the, who's the author on that? D- uh, Donaldson. He also did a fantasy, couple of fantasy series, but that's the gap series. Is Steve, one of Steve, his... Stephen R. Donaldson. Uh, yeah. It's Stephen R. Donaldson. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's that, that was a decent science fiction series. Um, and you know, more recently, like, uh, uh, been reading, um, the superpowered series and the, which so we, we definitely read speculative fiction across the, the spectrum. So superhero fantasy and science fiction, definitely hard fiction is my favorite hard science fiction, but, uh, but we'll, we'll cross over to all, all speculative fiction. Hmm. And so did you guys ever go to science fiction conventions or comic-con or anything like that? Yeah, not really as kids. There wasn't much as kids that, you know, I think Star Trek conventions sort of became like in the 80s. That that was probably the only thing that was around that we were aware of. And, um, it, you know, we didn't really have anyone to take us. And it kind of seemed a little nerdy even for <laughs> us at the time to, you know, to a dedicated Star Trek convention. But definitely when we got older and we got into science communication, those things overlap. So like we've been going to dragon con almost every year now. Uh, but, uh, except for the pandemic is the only thing that's really interfered with that. Um, we've been to the New York comic con. We've been to a lot of local ones. You know, there's, there was a, a con con in Connecticut for a while. I've been to that a number of times. Um, and, uh, there's a long Island con. So there's some local ones that we go to as well. Mm-hmm. Have you interacted with any science fiction authors? Like, written fan letters or met anyone or anything like that? So, I mean, I have a, a, fr- a close friend of mine, of, of my brothers and I, uh, Brian Trent is actually a science fiction author um, who's, who's got a few books out. And a close friend of ours is also, who just happens to live by us. And we, and uh, my brother Jay met him first, but it's Michael Whalen, you know, just happens to live oh, by wow. us. And we became close friends with him, uh, so, which is really amazing. His studio is in Danbury, Connecticut, you know. So that that was really interesting, just you know, because he, he obviously iconic science fiction artist. Um, so it's it's just great to talk to him about the whole process and and the industry and everything, you know. Yeah, if people don't know, yeah, he's just like the absolute top uh, cover illustrator for fantasy and science fiction. And I didn't actually realize he had a studio. You know, I grew up right by Danbury, so mm-hmm. I wish I had known that. I might have. Been able to finagle my way into <laughs> yeah, check out yeah, the studio yeah. or something. I mean, I think he moved here in the early '90s. That's when we met him, um, or he might have been here longer. We just didn't know it. But um, yeah, he's got, that's where this is where his studio is. Hmm. And so, um, so when you were reading, you said you're reading Asimov's nonfiction. Is that part of how you got into science and skepticism, or yeah, did it start? Definitely, yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, my interest in science fiction and science pretty much ran parallel you know, throughout my entire life. Asimov is interesting because he's one of the few authors that crisscrosses those two things. Um, 
I understand it's very difficult as an author to to be in both worlds. That publisher is kind of like you to keep be to stay in one world, but Asimov is Asimov, right? So he could do what he wants. So, um, you know, so Asimov is definitely one of my early influences reading popular science, uh, and then um, obviously Carl Sagan, um, Stephen Jay Gould. And, and other, you know, uh, of the, you know, obviously most, most famous popular science authors became my model. And not only, uh, I think, you know, nurtured my interest in science, but also science communication itself. Um, and, and I still, you know, read probably more nonfiction than fiction these days. I watched an interview with you where you said something that really struck me. You said Spock lied to me. Yeah, that's the open. That's the opening line of our first book, you know, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, which is the book itself is just about critical thinking and, and scientific literacy and media savvy and things like that. And uh, so we were when we were younger, we were big fans of In Search Of and, you know, we didn't really distinguish between the paranormal shows and the hard science shows. It was all presented pretty much equally on television. And it wasn't until we got older and, you know, we got more scientifically literate and, and more skeptical that we we realized that like shows like in search of were total nonsense, you know, and Leonard Nimoy hosted the show and you're lending the gravitas, you know, of Spock to, to that show, but it was utter nonsense. (laughs) It was complete nonsense. So that was also became part of our skeptical journey in terms of distinguishing real science from fake science and, you know, what's plausible from what's not plausible. And, you know, that, that is a, that's a full-time job too, trying to distinguish those, those things. So there's, you know, there's really three, three realms, you know, out there, there's science fiction, which of course we love, there's real science, and then there's fake science. And you, you can't mix those things together, you have to keep them distinct. So that that was definitely also part of our journey. I mean, when you were a kid, did you imagine that the future was going to be like a Star Trek future? Because I mean, I definitely did. I definitely thought I would be going off into outer space and having adventures and stuff like that as a kid? Yeah, I mean, we were huge Apollo fans, just were, you know, glued to the TV during the Apollo missions, you know, fantasized about space travel. And at that time, and that which, you know, led, you know, uh, fairly quickly into the space shuttle program. And again, so our younger selves definitely imagined that by now, that, you know, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, yeah, okay, that's probably pretty close to the way things are going to be. There's going to be permanent space stations in space. There's going to be an infrastructure between here and the moon, a lunar base, all that stuff. We, we took it for granted. It's like, of course, yeah, that's totally, of course that's going to happen. Just follow the arc of, of this space program. The idea that it'd be 50 years later and we still haven't been, you know, still haven't returned to the moon, I think would have been shocking to us when we were younger. And, and, you know, we also bought into the other typical futuristic tropes, you know, like thinking like, okay, you know, maybe flying cars, that's, that's, that's kind of, uh, of, um, you know, a, maybe a more of a distant future thing. But, you know, like, again, we would watch movies like uh, Blade Runner with, with flying cars. And it didn't seem like that was terribly unrealistic, you know, to us at the time. Um, and then of course, you know, we missed all the real technological innovations of the last 20, 30 years because they weren't really anticipated by science fiction. So it's, I do think in a lot of ways we're living in a science fiction future right now. It's just not the one that anybody imagined. It's just very, very different. Yeah, well, what's like the the iPhone basically mm-hmm. is like more amazing than anything that was really 
uh, predicted in science fiction, but then a lot of the other stuff, robots, flying cars, space mm-hmm. voyages and all that stuff sort of failed to pan out. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, we, we go you know somewhere now in our, our new book, the science, the Skeptic's Guide to the Future. We go over what we call like the futurism fallacies. Like, why do why are we so bad at imagining the future, at predicting the future? And there's a number of reasons why that that is. You know, we tend to you know overestimate these sort of short term progress. We think that things are going to change just because they can. You know what I mean? Like in the future, everything has to be done differently because it's the future. You know, you can't do things the same. You can't make stuff out of the same material we're using now. So everything is different just to be different. But in reality, some things stay the same, you know, and, and, and things, and it's kind of hard to predict what things will change and how they will change. It's hard to predict how people will use technology, how they'll interface with it. And, and the kind of things that we imagine are like the next step, like the robot butler. Actually, when you think about it, it's not that plausible. It's certainly, you know, why would we have something like that in the first place? And what would it really take for that to be feasible? It's, it's something that, um, you know, may never really be manifest in the way that we think about it in classic science fiction. So, uh, that's kind of what, you know, in the book, we try to learn the lesson from all these fallacies and say, okay, if we, try not to make all the same mistakes again and try to imagine like another 50 or hundred years in the future, maybe we could do a little bit better at trying to imagine what that might be. Yeah. I really liked all the, the futuristic fallacies that you lay out. And, and one of them is, you know, that you, that, that everything in the future has to be done using the most advanced technology possible. Uh, I liked the example of, um, you know, that in the future, everyone's going to dry their hands with like hot air you know, like, and like you would infrared have in a, lights and stuff. Yeah. You know, you know, in a public restroom, like just everyone's going to have that in their house. And there's no reason in particular that you couldn't do that. I mean, the technology exists. It's just nobody cares. That much. You know, like a hand right. towel is fine. So towels work really well. Right. I mean, would you if you had a towel, wouldn't you use it rather than blowing air on your hands? Who <laughs> likes to do that. But it's just got to be done in a way that looks futuristic. Yeah. So um it's amazing how persistent technology can be. Uh, I think one of the things that's, you know, when you think about it, um, that's been incredibly persistent is materials, right? We're still building stuff basically out of the same five or six most common materials that were in use thousands of years ago. You know, we're still, there's only really a few very modern materials like plastics and aluminum and things like that. But most of the stuff, just look around, it's wood, glass, stone, cement, you know, those are the, most of the stuff is, is made out of things that have been around for thousands of years. Um, if things work, we don't change it just to change it. You know, uh, there's gotta be some kind of, of a, of a, an advantage to it. And, and, and you can't, and there can't just be one advantage. Like the whole package has to work. It has to be, reasonably convenient and cost effective and there's got to be an infrastructure for it and you have to consider all of these things we don't change over our technology just because we can or just because there's an incremental advantage the whole package has to be worth it and so unless you look at it from that really multi-dimensional way it's it's hard to again like accurately predict what technological changes are likely to happen so what was the process like of writing the book? I mean, I guess you, you sort of sold it to the publisher or whatever, and then you sit down to to write it and then kind of like, how did things proceed from there? Yeah. So for, you know, this is our second book. So we tried to learn the lessons from our first book. Um, and so one of the things that we did was we did a much fatter proposal for the publisher. Um, you know, the, 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 the first book was 
you know, came about because, you know, we were actually approached by a publisher. They just, they, they were looking to do a book based upon our podcast. So that kind of, the podcast kind of was the proposal. We had to put together still a formal thing, but it was pretty thin. For the second book, you know, we wanted to do something way more substantial. So we actually wrote a few chapters, completely outlined every chapter in the book, you know, described all the chapters, um, et cetera, before we even presented the idea to the publisher. So we were pretty well developed. They instantly loved the idea and we were off to the races. Um, so the, what, what Bob and Jay, my two brothers, you know, my co-authors, so we divided the chapters up. First, we you know, decided what the chapters were going to be, which was not hard. This, this, is, this is one of those books where they, the idea was so solid that it basically wrote itself in terms of like the structure and everything. Obviously, you know, it didn't write itself in terms of the details, doing all the research. But once we had the book outlined, we divided the chapters up among the three of us. Um, and then I did all the writing because, you know, the prose has got to be in one voice. For the first book, we tried having different, uh, you know, of the co-authors submitting written chapters, but that didn't really work. They had to rewrite them way too extensively. So this time it's like, all right, so Bob and Jay just did a lot of research on their chapters and submitted that research to me. And we iterated it. We talked about like what I needed and what the structure of the chapters was going to be and, you know, what exactly information was going to be the most helpful. And then, you know, once we solidified that process you know they they were able to to give me everything i needed for each of the chapters that they were researching and then i wrote every chapter you know and then sent it back to them to read and to make suggestions and and to iterate it etc um so that was the process it worked really well it was a ton of fun to write it, it really i mean there's a lot of research and there's a lot of you know reworking but the um you know, just the the idea of the book and and the structure of the book made it just a dream to write. So, is the 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 material that ended up in the book was it mostly stuff that you pretty much knew already, or were there things that you researched where you're like, "Wow, I had no idea." Yeah, it's both of those that. things, right? So, obviously, like you know, some people ask, "How long did it take you to write this book?" And I say, "Yeah, about thirty years," because <laughs> we we've been doing the research for this book our whole lives, right? This is like we're not starting from scratch, uh, which is part of the reason why it was kind of fun and easy to write from that point of view. Like we know about things like you know, room temperature superconductors. Like we didn't need to do research to know that that needed to be a chapter in the book, you know, what the potential of that is. But we had to, to do, we had to update ourselves on the research and do a much deeper dive, even though we've been doing, you know, we've been doing a podcast for 18 years where we talk about all these issues. So we had a huge, you know, background of science news items and et cetera, and interviews with people about these topics. But even still, when you sit down and go, all right, I need to write a definitive chapter about reaction rockets, you know, what role they're going to play in the future. You still discover surprising things. And in my mind was, was, was changed on a few of the topics that we covered. You know, I, I came out of the process thinking very differently about some things than I went into the process on, which is, which could is interesting. You, could yeah. you give an example? Oh yeah. So, you know, so, um, space travel is, is one a big section of the book, obviously. And you could pretty much forget everything you think you know about space travel from science fiction. I can't think of a single science fiction, you know, major science fiction franchise that does a good job of portraying what the future of space travel is probably going to be like. Obviously, some are 
better than others. The Expanse does a pretty good job. But even The Expanse, I don't think it's going to, you know, space travel is going to look anything like that in 200 years. Um, is when you really dig, do a, dig down into the details of, of what a space traveling infrastructure is going to look like. Like nobody gets close in terms of portraying that. So like, for example, um, you know, well, the part of that is just a, it's a plot device, you know, science fiction stories, you have to get from A to B, like your hero needs to be able to bop around and the action's got to move quickly. So most science fiction writers know that they're not really predicting the future. They're just introducing some plot device to get people from A to B quickly. You know, so very few try to like realistically portray the future of space travel. Um, And then even then, uh, you know, very few, I think, do a realistic job. So, for example, what would you say is likely to be the workhorse of human space travel for the next 10,000 years? You know, for basically the indefinite future until we develop ridiculous ridiculously far future technologies that we can't even imagine how we would do now what would you think well i mean i read the book so oh god you read the whole book right, so you so you probably know solar then sale. that it's yeah it's, so, it's some kind of solar sails that's how we're going to get around because y- you you don't have to carry your fuel around with you if we're going to get to another solar system it's we got to use something where you're not carrying your fuel with you and for reaction rockets you know we're going to hit fusion reactors fusion rockets and then that's going to be it forever like the the probability of ever moving beyond few we may never move beyond fusion and if we do the only thing i think is really semi-plausible is if we figure out a way to make you know matter antimatter engines um which means that we're we can cheaply and, and in abundance make antimatter and and either store it ridiculously safely or use it as we produce it as we need it who knows if or how long that will take. Everything else is almost fantasy. It's so far advanced in the future, like using black holes or whatever. So once we really develop a good fusion engine for a rocket, that's pretty much going to be it pretty much forever. Right. But you don't, you certainly, you don't get that feeling, you know, reading any science fiction. Um, And then the other thing that I don't know that I've ever seen any science fiction story deal with this is that the, the intergalactic, you know, cosmic rays, our death, you know, like we don't have any idea how we're going to deal with them. We have no idea how we're going to deal with them. And that means that, you know, humans, your lifetime exposure to deep space is like 10 months. That's it. So you you can't live in space unless you're inside a rock, unless you're inside an asteroid, you know, or under the ground. But like on being on a spaceship for years, it's not going to happen. Again, unless we unless we come up with a completely new way to shield against cosmic rays, and we don't even know how we would do that now. And what I would what I imagine is it's going to be some combination of powerful magnetic fields, and also you're going to be in the belly of a spaceship with feet of steel between you and hard <laughs> vacuum. And again, you never see that. You're not going to be standing on the bridge of the Enterprise with glass over your head. It's just not going to happen. Again, you have to hypothesize some, some, some like futuristic metamaterial, which is not impossible. It's not impossible. It's just never even talked about in science fiction, right? Like, what, what is the shielding for the cosmic ray? I mean, and, I, I got the impression from the book that you thought there was a pretty good chance that we could genetically engineer people to have much yeah, higher radiation. I, I, 
I do think that that's plausible, you know, using tardigrade proteins or whatever. But but what, what's that going to do? We're going to double our ability to withstand space or triple it? Okay, so it's two years or something. Uh, uh, making it something even more significant than that is is possible. We don't know what the limits are. I mean, it would be nice if we could if we could engineer humans to be ten times as resistant, you know, to cosmic rays. Something. Something like that is going to be necessary. Again, not anything that's talked about. But th- that's the other thing is by the time we are, you know, really living in space and going to other solar systems, et cetera, it's probably not going to be generic humans doing it, right? We're going to be genetically modified cyborgs. And that's, pr- and that's probably how we're going to be able to do it. Um, so, and that's the other sort of... Um, futurism fallacy that's important to think about when you when you imagine what is this technology going to be like in the future like what is space travel going to be like in the future you can't just project that technology forward you have to think about it in the context of all other technologies also advancing over the same period of time so we won't be traveling in space in 500 years, right? Our genetically modified cyborg descendants will be traveling in space in 500 years. And you have to include that as part of your calculation, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I would definitely encourage science fiction authors to read this book because there was a, there were a lot of ideas in here that, you know, and I've read a lot of science fiction um, that I couldn't think of having seen before. And even really, I think fairly obvious stuff like, um, you, you know, in science fiction, almost always, if you're going to go from Earth to Mars, you would get in a spaceship and go from Earth to Mars. Mm-hmm. And you say, actually, it's, it's more, you know, uh, plausible that there would be a ship that's just constantly going back and forth between Earth and Mars, a big ship. And you would have yeah. little ships, you know, leaving from those destinations and joining up with the big ship and kind of, hitching a ride uh, on this this loop that it's making over and over yeah. again. Yeah, and, that, and, the, and to broaden that, I think that – so we have this Millennium Falcon sort of image of a spaceship. It's a very romantic image where you get on your spaceship and you travel to wherever you're going to go when you land and you get out, right? But like the single stage, one ship that gets you wherever you want to go. And of course, that would be ideal. We would love that. But that's not going to happen, Right. Again, not in the foreseeable future. It's never going to be economical for that to be how we get around. Like the the one variable there is if we if we develop artificial gravity, all bets are off. But it, artificial gravity may be impossible. And so, if we imagine a future where, in all high probability, artificial gravity is impossible, and then what would space travel be like in that universe, which is probably our universe? Then we're not going to. There's going to be no Millennium Falcon, right? Um, getting off of a 1G planet is always going to be hard. You're going to need something with a lot of thrust. You're going to need a big rocket, right? That's the bottom line. And But that's not necessarily what you want to then take to the moon or to Mars or zipping around. I suspect that, and again, we're not also doing one-off missions, right? If we are, if we are having a space infrastructure where we're routinely traveling to different destinations in space, it, we're going to, you're going to be in an optimal vessel for each leg of your journey, right? You're going to take something into low earth orbit, get on, you know, to a space station. And then from there, you're going to get your cis lunar shuttle to the moon, or you're going to get a shuttle that will rendezvous with a deep spaceship that's going to Mars. And then you're going to get on a lander optimized for Mars or optimized for the moon or whatever your destination is, because those are very different things. And making one ship that could do everything is just not pragmatic. And the waste is going to be immense. And so I I think we're going to have 
multiple legs to get anywhere. And, and again, not something you really see in a lot of science fiction. I think 2001 came close though, right? In 2001, he took a ship to the space station and then a shuttle to the moon, although that same shuttle then landed. I think that you know already we're designing a lunar orbiter and then you would take a lander from there. So that might be more realistic. Uh, so, so again, when you think through pragmatically, it looks very different than the romantic science fiction vision. And I also think that's why, you know, in a hundred or 200 years, people are going to be looking at the science fiction of last century and this century. And it's going to seem just as quaint to them as when we look back at like the science fiction of the, of the 19th century, it's going to be super quaint. The other idea I thought was cool I wanted to mention is you have this idea that if you're approaching a destination, and again, I I can't think of an example that I've seen of this in science fiction, but if you're approaching a destination in space, that you could have sort of robot bodies uh, waiting Mm -hmm. for you at your destination. And then as soon as you're, you know, close enough to be able to send signals back and forth, you could, you know, sort of uh, jack into the robot body and start, you know, taking yeah. care of whatever business you needed at your destination uh, before I, your body I, arrives. I, I've read a ton of science fiction short stories. And now I can't remember any of the authors or whatever, even the short stories. I just remember like the ideas that I read in them. And so I've definitely encountered similar ideas in lots of science fiction short stories. But again, that touches upon the idea that you ha- we have to imagine future people doing these things, not ourselves. And and so the, the this question that w- this debate that's going on right now is like, should people or robots explore space? And the answer is going to be yes, both <laughs> should, right? We're because why not? And because we will be our robots or be will be interfacing with our robots or might literally be our robots. And so you know, why wouldn't we just, you know, you go into orbit around a planet. If if it's like a planet with a surface gravity of 2G, like you're not getting back off that planet. Forget about it. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to visit the surface of that planet, just jack into a robot. That's, that's your avatar on the planet. Why wouldn't you do that? Um, and of course, even further in the future, you could actually, you know, it, our consciousness may be code, right? <laughs> and so um, you could, literally occupy different bodies optimized for different environments, whether they're biological, cyborg, robotic, or whatever combination is is appropriate. And again, so the answer to how are we going to be spending so much time in space with our fragile bodies and, you know, the cosmic rays and everything, it's like, yeah, we, maybe we won't. Maybe we'll just put our mind into a robot that's made for space. You know, robots don't care about cosmic rays. <laughs> um, and that, that's the solution. Why are you going to take your frail biological body into space? Why would you do that? You know, when you could, you can, you know, take a robotic body, there, you know, or just be software, you know, why even, you know, unless you need to be a physical body, why would you be? So we have to, you know, have all these things happening at once. Yeah. I mean, one thing I kept thinking of while I was reading this book is, you know, when I first got into when I was a young science fiction author, an idea that people were talking about a lot was the technological singularity, which is basically the idea that the pace of technology is going to keep speeding up and keep speeding up until, you know, we're going to have godlike AIs and there's like a century of progress every second and all this kind of stuff. And we're all going to be immortal and uploading our minds to the cloud and all this stuff. And I remember really distinctly Kim Stanley Robinson saying, like, you guys are crazy. (laughs) Like, this is not going to happen. You know, you're you're making the same mistake that uh, people made when they were, you know, predicting, uh, you know, colonies in 1990 and and stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
So this is a debate we had amongst ourselves, and we don't necessarily all agree with each other on exactly what we think is the most likely way things are going to play out. And because the big question is, is uh, artificial general intelligence, right? So I think it's pretty, we all agree that that's going to happen. That's just matter of incremental advances in current technology. There's no new laws of physics we have to discover, no new entirely new technologies. If we keep progressing our digital, you know, computer technology, we'll eventually be able to make something that has human level intelligence, right? That's pretty much a given. The only question really is when. Is it going to be 50 years, 100 years, whatever? But once we do, there's also absolutely no reason why we're going to stop at human level intelligence. We're going to blow right past it, right? There's nothing magical about human level intelligence uh, that it doesn't represent any kind of plateau or threshold or anything. It's just what we would biologically what we're capable of. And so what's the world going to be like when we have AGIs that are a million times more intelligent than humans? You know, they could think a million times faster than us with, you know, more computing power and more memory and whatever in ways that we can't do and, you know, collaborating in ways that we can't imagine. Um, What's that going to be like? And that's, I think, if there's any legitimacy to the idea of a singularity, it's that we really can't look past that point because that's going to be so transformative. We just don't know, you know, what, what the world's going to be like at the other end. So, of, so when of you're that. debating it, like who's on which side? Well, but Bob is the techno optimist, right? He always thinks, oh yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to be sooner than you think. It's going to be awesome. And you know, I'm the, a techno pessimist. Real, I, I would say realist. Jay's kind of in the middle. Um, so I'm always pulling Bob back. It's like, okay, yeah, but it's going <laughs> to take longer than you think. And yeah, the other so the other part of this debate is that um, while the pace of technology is demonstrably increasing and it's happening now, like even with narrow AI, um, we are, and we've discussed this on, on the, the skeptics guide podcast, not too long ago, there's been several studies where they said, and we modeled this using an AI algorithm and basically did 20 years of research in three months. Like they literally can calculate like this would have taken us years to do these experiments, but we were able to bypass all of that by using an AI simulation and figuring out ahead of time, this was the thing that we needed to look at. And, and it was literally decades of research in months. So it's happening now that is happening. And that's, and we're on the steep part of that curve. So that's going to keep happening. But the other end of the equation is some problems get exponentially more difficult to solve also, right? So while our research and, te- and technological advances may be geometric, we're, all, we're picking the low-hanging fruit. And the problems, can, some problems get geometrically diff- difficult as well, and we get diminishing returns. And how do those two things play out? And that's what it's really hard to predict. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like well, why, why, why? How come we don't have flying cars then? If you know if technology, technological advances are accelerating. It's like, well, because it was a harder nut to crack than we thought. You know, and yeah. it just took a lot longer. I, th- I thought the example was really telling in the book where you say, when I was ten years old, you could fly from New York to LA in six yeah. hours, and fifty years later, you can fly from New York to LA in six hours. Yeah, fifty years later, again, would my ten-year-old self have thought that it would? 
plane travel would be exactly the same except with better entertainment basically <laughs> and less leg room no you know that i would think you were insane you know the same amount of time because we we hit a but we did hit a plateau you know planes travel just slower than the speed of sound this is a little bit of a of a technological aerodynamic sweet spot you know for cost effectiveness and that's where commercial jets fly and that's they're always going to be there until we break through with supersonic technology, which just may not be commercially viable anytime soon. Um, again, we had some brief dalliances with it, with the Concorde, et cetera, but it turned out not to really be you know, sustainable for a number of reasons. And so that's something that's just not improving incrementally or linearly, let alone geometrically. It, it plateaued. And so we don't know where those plateaus are necessarily always going to be. We're going to every technology at some point is going to hit up against the laws of physics, right? And and you know, unfortunately, we only have one example of of a technology technological civilization. It's not like we could look at a hundred technological civilizations and see what's happened. We only have one to look at, so we're just sort of guessing as we go along. And and that's again why it becomes really hard to predict the future. Where are we going to run up against these walls that are hard to get over, or may take decades or centuries to get over, despite you know rapidly improving technology in other areas. Um, and and therefore, when you look at past futurists, the big mistakes they make are not predicting the game changers. Right? Anyone can predict incremental advances, but the things that really trip futurists up is when they think something is going to be a breakthrough and it isn't, where they just entirely miss the real breakthroughs. Like the big one, the big one is the analog to digital transition, right? Nobody picked up on that. Asimov completely missed it. Nobody saw how digital technology was going to transform our society and our world. Of course, now once it has, then it, it seems obvious, but, um, that was a game changer that nobody saw coming. And, you know, and so now we're trying to predict what are the future game changers like that going to be? And we have some, I think, educated guesses, you know, I think 3D printing type of stuff, you know, using um, nanotechnology and, um, and certainly AI and, um, you know, quantum computing. There's all these things out there that's like, yeah, these are probably going to be big in the future. Genetic technology, the ability to basically control life at its fundamental building blocks is going to be huge. But exactly when, exactly how it's going to manifest, you know, and it, are things going to hit walls that we just can't get over? Or is it going to, we're going to turn around and one, and one day, like with, the iPhone and go, my God, the world is different. I can't even imagine what it was like to live without the iPhone or whatever, yeah. smartphones, you know? Well, one thing I wanted, since you're a doctor, one thing I was kind of wondering is you talk in the book about how, you know, and this, this seems like it's not too far off is like technology to do direct neural interface where you could, you know, one oh, person yeah. could be experiencing somebody else's uh, sensoria. And, you know, whenever you go to the doctor, they say, you know, well, like, how much does it hurt or like, where does it hurt and stuff like that. And so it seems like the doctor could kind of like hook you up to a device and the doctor could uh, experience exactly mm -hmm. what pain you're in or whatever. I was just curious what you think about that as a as a doctor. Yeah, that was a Black Mirror episode. I don't know if you saw that. Um, that they had exactly that, a device that would allow a doctor to experience all of your symptoms. Oh, directly. I don't. Yeah, I don't was, remember that. Yeah, yeah, that mean? was the, the the black museum. You know, that was one of the three vignettes in in the museum where the the doctor then then remember the the pain 
he started to enjoy the pain, so he wanted to wanted to feel the suffering. I think I patients. didn't watch. I think that was like I no, think I didn't that watch one? that that one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sure, and that's just one tiny application of the you know the brain machine interface. So brain machine interface, you know, that's one of those things where if I had to put my nickel on something that's going to like definitely transform our world, that's one of those technologies, and partly because again. We're at the point where we just need incremental advances, right? All of the basic principles have already been established. Machines can read brain waves and interpret them. Brains can read machine output and interpret it. And we can control robotic limbs and we could get sensory feedback from them. And our brain has no problem incorporating and mapping to these new you know, limbs, these, these new, um, applications, right. Extensions. Uh, and so it, it can work, you know, the whole matrix thing that we don't know the ultimate limits of it, but we don't, there's no theoretical limit to it though. It's really just a matter of how high resolution we're going to be able to get. So, and there's no theoretical limitation there either. It's purely technological practice practical limitations but theoretically there's absolutely no reason why we can't have the matrix where you have a completely seamless brain machine interface and then once you do it's hard to think of all the ways that that's going to change our world i mean you know being able to diagnose symptoms is like just one tiny sliver of the possible applications there um it's that's going to just transform what it means to be a human being you know and our very existence yeah, I, I was just curious about that in particular, just because you're a doctor. I was wondering, like, would you do that or like? Do you Absolutely, one hundred percent. I mean, yeah, I'm actually a neurologist. I'm a brain doctor, so I've taken a very keen interest in that technology. I've been following it very closely, and it's it's progressing quite nicely. And again, all the basic principles are there. Um, and yeah, I, I would one hundred percent do it. You know? Do you think that that might put a like a psychological strain on doctors if they're just experiencing all this pain all the time? Or yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, but you know, there's, there's already a lot of stressors of being a physician. Uh, but you know, th- then we have to say like, oh, well, how can might have to set limits on it? Limits on intensity, limits on duration. You know, maybe blocking the autonomic effects of it. Whatever we figure out ways and. Um, yeah, and I definitely it definitely would cause psychological stress and trauma, no question. So that that would have to be taken into consideration in terms of the application of it. And that's again that gets to one of those tricks of futurism, which is maybe people won't like it. You know, you think, well, yeah, we <laughs> could do this. You know, and then again, like now, I think the classic example of that. Pretty much every show about the future has video phones, right? Because video phones are how we communicate in the future. Whenever the future is, no matter how soon or far in the future, we communicate by video phones. It's now a trope, right? That is a futurism trope. And yet we have completely have the technology now to communicate with video phone all the time and almost nobody does it ever. <laughs> and, and right? And and nobody predicted that. We text rather than have a a face-to-face conversation. Because until you start to actually use a technology in your everyday, you don't realize that, yeah, I just don't like doing that. I mean, you know, it just, it's, it takes a lot of social energy to, to be on a video. 
you know, and who, who want you want to be able to pick your nose and look at your, uh, <laughs> your email and do whatever you want to do while you're talking to somebody, or you want to communicate in virtual time. Nobody anticipated the bliss of communicating in virtual time. You know, you don't have to actually interact with in real time with a person. You can just send your message off to them. They can react to it whenever they want to. It's it's wonderful. Again, nobody anticipated that and that we would prefer that to having a face to face conversation with somebody. But that's how things played out. And so that's sort of now the iconic example of how it's hard to predict how people will interface with technology. So even if we say, yeah, this is possible, you know, exactly how people will use it is chaos. It's like, we (laughs) won't know until it happens. We won't know until 8 billion people give it a try and tell us what they think. It's funny too, because how the, um, the social, you know, social, uh, what would you say? Sort of expectations shift around technology too. I, I remember when I first started dating my girlfriends. You know, I'm a I'm Gen X and she's a millennial, and mm-hmm. um, you know, we would be in the we would be having these long text message conversations, and then she would just completely disappear. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm and and I I'd be kind of like annoyed. I'm like, wait, we were talking, and then you just like disappeared. And she's like, no, that's completely normal. Like I just text when I can, and, and then I get busy with something else, and then I pick it up later. You know, and it's like. And, yeah. and then, of course, I, I adjusted to that because that's how everybody uses it. But it's like there's there's sort of a an adjustment period with these new technologies where you know you sort of have to people have to figure out how yeah how you use them exactly. My millennial daughters are both <laughs> the same way. They use their smartphone completely differently than my wife and I do. Right? It's like I call them. They don't answer the phone when you call <laughs> them. Like that's a foreign concept to them. You know, they, they, they use it for texting when they want to, you know, or whatever. It's just, they just don't use, sometimes they just have the ringer off. It's like, why don't you answer the phone? I don't use it for that. I have the ringer off. <laughs> and, and so again, big, big futurism, you know, lesson here is you can't imagine yourself in the future. We all want to do that, right? We want to imagine ourselves with these high tech toys that we're going to have, but it's not going to be us in the future. It's going to be different people. It's going to be two, three, four generations, you know, iterated different from us. It's going to be our children's children's children. And who knows what the hell they're going to be like, right? (laughs) They're going to have a completely different relationship with technology than we do. Again, even one generation, and it's frustrating how different their relationship is with technology than ours is. They have a completely different expectation of privacy than we do. You know what I mean? And and we and we, and again, it, there's you know lots of people thinking about and writing about and talking about how that's changing the the psyche of the new generation. But nobody anticipated it. Nobody was talking about it in the 1980s or whatever about how like social media and you know being walking around with a device that can capture anything, any every whim and thought and you know whatever and taking selfies and whatever. Nobody anticipated <laughs> the the massive cultural impact that this was going to happen and how we're going to have to wrestle with this, let alone the disinformation tsunami it brought. Like it broke our relationship with reality. Nobody saw that coming, right? Social media was all pie in the sky. People will communicate with each other. It'll be fantastic. And those things did happen, but it also completely broke our relationship with reality. And, and now we're all living in these siloed, um, you know, echo chambers of gaslighting you know it's like 
okay, maybe democracy doesn't work in this world anymore. I mean, we don't know. We have to, it's still playing itself out and maybe we'll adjust and everything will be fine, you know, but, it, but we're, it's, it's again, not, it's the kind of thing that nobody really anticipated. Yeah. I, I hope there'll be an adjustment, you know, that, yeah, I you think know, so. just the volume got turned up really loud and everyone's sort of freaking out, but eventually people will get used to the new volume level and things will kind of settle down again. I think so. And again, like this, this happened every time there's a media breakthrough. Like when the printing press came out, oh my God, you know, we're doomed. People could print anything they want. You know, it's like, yeah, so what? <laughs> but you, you adjust, you adjust to it. And, and again, again, I think future generations will look back at our angst over social media and go, yeah, I was like really pathetic. <laughs> I was just, again, really quaint. You know, we're, we're going to look terribly old fashioned to those future generations when they when they they read all the hand wringing about you know what's going on today yeah well so you you uh, toward the beginning of the book you note that futurism as an academic discipline has sort of been on the wane i was just curious how you feel about that do you think it's just sort of given the track record of futurism that's just as well or do we need more futurism majors uh, i think i think we do i think we i would like to see it you know, I think it comes and goes. I don't think it's it's like a permanently on the wane. I just think there was like a lot of things. It was new and fresh and it had sort of its heyday. And then it's sort of settling down into something a little bit more sedate. But um, and also like early exuberance, like, oh, we're going to, you know, really have a hard science of predicting the future. And then you realize that, oh, wow, this is really hard, you know, and and people suck at it. <laughs> um, and and that, but that doesn't mean it's not a legitimate academic discipline. It's just one of those disciplines that is going to be a grind. Like it's going to, and, and, and think about it. If, how long is it going to take to figure out how good we are at predicting things a hundred years in the future? It's going to take about a hundred years, you know? <laughs> and so it's, it's not the kind of thing where you can have instant feedback or you could rapidly adjust your models or your approach or your thinking it's going to be the kind of thing that's going to really slowly play out over time you know like i'm hoping a hundred years from now people will reading will be reading our book and learning from all the mistakes that we made you know and 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 maybe getting a little bit better that that's kind of the time frame of futurism as a discipline but um it, you know, it, it's one of the, it, but I do think it's a perfectly legitimate academic endeavor. And I also think it's important because, um, you know, d kind of picking your head up and having a feel for where you are in the arc of history has certain advantages, you know, and, and, and if you, you're sort of living your life in this little brief window of time without any sense of where you are in history, you could lose sight of what's important. You could, you know, it, lose the ability to adapt nimbly to changes in technology, to changes in culture, to make decisions about the future, et cetera. So I do think there's a lot of benefit to futurism as an academic discipline. We just have to be realistic, you know, about yeah. it. Well, that's what I always say about science fiction is that, you know, there's this uh, movement called long-termism now where the yep. idea is that you should, you know, we should be thinking more about, you know, what's going to happen 500 or a thousand years in the future, which we tend to not think about at all. Yeah. And I've, I've said for years, I mean, that's what science fiction is really good at making you see people in the future as real people who have real concerns that we should care about. And even if all the technology predictions are wrong, just that mm -hmm. conceptual leap of, of, oh, these are people who are going to be just as real as, as people in the past or people in the present is val valuable in and of itself. 
Science fiction is just one massive thought experiment, you know? It's actually, it's a thousand thought experiments, but, you know, kind of collectively, it's this meta thought experiment about what the future is going to be like, what is technology going to be like, what are people going to be like in the future, et cetera. And I, I, that's part, part of my fascination with it is just imagining, you know, something completely different, you know, and, and looking at things in different ways, changing variables you didn't know were variables. Like you didn't even know that could be something that could be different. Again, it's, it's, we're, we're kind of all very um, sort of parochial in our, our view of the life and the universe. And, Science fiction forces you to pick your head up and step back, right? It forces you to take a bigger view, to look at civilizations and, you know, humanity and massive arcs of time uh, and things that are just you are, things that are way beyond the experience of our day to day life. And I, I think it's hugely important. Science fiction is hugely important as a way of giving us this deep broad, you know, uh, and large in scope perspective, uh, that we need. And because we, we, we can't get it in our day to day life because we're, you know, worrying about what we're going to have for dinner, you know, <laughs> and, and, and that's pretty much our day to day. And it's, you know, you're not going to be able to think about, Oh, I wonder where technology is heading in 500 years. You know, you, you, you have to <laughs> exert, you know, intellectual energy to, to think about that. I also I, just, I really want to read this part because you make this point that one reason why predicting the future is so hard is that there's sort of this almost chaos theory kind of thing where just the tiniest differences can have massive, massive um, effects on what technology we end up using. And so you say um, it was once possible that we would be living in a world today powered by direct current and fueled mostly by nuclear power in which all electric vehicles have always been standard. Long-distance intercity travel is mostly by rockets, and our home devices are powered by nuclear isotope batteries. And who could yeah. ever predict which whether we would be in that world or this world? There's, it's yeah. Just... The way I like to say it is we couldn't predict the present. <laughs> How are we going to predict the future? Meaning, like, if we went back in time 100 years, we wouldn't be able to predict that that we're, the world we're living in today is – say we, we can't look back historically and say – that anything, any of the current things that we have now are inevitable. You know, we, we could be using Zeppelins instead of ships, you know, for cargo transport. We, again, we could have our, our fleet could have always been fully electric, you know, we could be flying in rockets and et cetera. But these were quirky choices that were made sometimes by individual people, sometimes just because of contingency, because the infrastructure wasn't quite there yet, or, you know, things could have definitely played out very differently if that some guy in Pennsylvania didn't discover crude oil for another 20 years. How totally different would our world be today? There's nothing inevitable about our present, and therefore there's nothing inevitable about the future. Yeah. All right. So we're almost out of time. I, I did want to give you a chance to talk about Alpha Quadrant 6. Because yeah. you're actually you've been doing your own science fiction podcast. Yeah, so Alpha Quadrant Six. It's a it's a uh, science fiction. It's a podcast and a YouTube show. So it's video and and a podcast version of it. Again, it's you know, Jay, Bob, and I. We've been doing this for several years now. We started out just we when Star Trek Discovery came out. Like, hey, let's do a Star Trek Discovery like sort of episode review guide, and then we just we then expanded it to just 
all science fiction. And we also now are expanding into futurism as well as science fiction, uh, obviously because of our book um, and the intersection, you know, so far we've only covered like the intersection of science fiction and futurism, which is obviously huge. And yeah, I mean, we have, again, the, you know, a hundred years of experience between the three of us and pretty much all speculative uh, fiction and all media. Uh, and so, uh, so we have a lot of fun just, chatting about the latest superhero movie or you know star wars episode on uh, series on tv or whatever and try to try to bring you know the perspective of some you know older guys who have been doing this for <laughs> watching these kind of shows for decades and can can uh, yeah you have a, a deep well of examples to draw upon um so it's a lot of fun yeah we, we hope your your audience would want to check it out yeah, so I noticed you you started off with like episodes about our favorite aliens and our favorite robots. Would that be a yeah. good place to start, or are there other places you think people should jump in? Or I mean, I think you could jump in anywhere, but those are good. Yeah, so that's one of the, there are sort of series we do within AQ six. So we have our like top ten episodes, like what are our top ten favorite you know spaceships or you know or, um, energy based weapons or whatever it is. We come up with something fun, and uh, so those those are all really you know, f- uh, fun episodes. Sometimes we'll take two shows and compare and contrast, you know, like what, how they're the same, how they're different, what works, what doesn't work. Um, a lot of them are just sort of single series or single movie reviews. Um, but we always, you know, try to then talk about like the genre and the franchise and again, sort of put it into a deeper perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, so yeah, we're always trying to come up with new ways of parsing. You know, that's like we come up with just questions like, "All right, who's really a better captain? Was it Kirk or Picard?" You know, and I know that's like a classic sort of uh, dead horse that, that <laughs> skeptics and nerds like to beat, but I, we we take that discussion to some surprising places. I think um, talking about it's Kirk, by the way, Kirk was the best <laughs> captain, um, but for reasons that you may not may not suspect. Hmm. All right, cool. No, I have to check that out. Um, do you have any other, uh, like any other final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about? Well, yeah, we're doing a lot of different stuff. We have a, we have a live stream coming up, a six hour live stream on September 24th. So if you want to, you know, uh, dip your toes in the world of the skeptics guide to the universe, that's not a bad place to start. We have, you know, a weekly podcast, a weekly AQ six, you know, video podcast, this is our second book coming out. There will be more this. We're still thinking about what the, uh, the next books are going to be. Um, we have lots of you know, videos uh, online and we do most Fridays. We do a live stream. In fact, that's where I'm going from here is our weekly live stream. So if you just go to the skeptics you could get access to all of our stuff there. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I'll, I'll let you go so you can get to that. But um, I, I told you before we started recording that I've listened to a lot of skeptics guide to the universe and obviously Thank given you. the similarities between the titles of our podcast i think yeah. people who like this show should uh, if they haven't checked out sgu already they should definitely check it out well thank you yeah and yeah, yeah i've been looking at uh at your your personal fiction and and your podcast it's great I'm gonna definitely just i found some episodes i have to download and listen to oh oh yeah that'd be great yeah no that would be an honor i'd be honored uh, if you check it out um, but yeah, but we're all out of time, so why don't we uh, wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Stephen Novella about his book, The Skeptic's Guide to the Future. So, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. And that was our interview. 
So big thanks again to Stephen Novella for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.